Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Giant from 1956 with my wonderful guest, Susanna Mars. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And here today, I have the wonderful Susanna Mars. Hi, Susanna, how are you? Oh my gracious, Sarah. I'm just great. I love talking to you. So it's uh, you put a smile on my face. You put a smile on my face. Thanks for being on the show. Anytime. Oh. And uh, today we watched the film, oh, not today, but we watched the film Giant from 1956, directed by the George Stevens. Susanna, what'd you think? How'd you feel this time? Holy cow, my gracious, holy cow, that's actually perfect, a perfect <laughs> response. So much to talk about. The film is beautiful and also fraught with difficult elements, plot points, language, and plus the history around James mm-hmm. Dean and mm-hmm. the relationship between the three of them on set that I read a little bit about. I mean, it is, we've got a lot to talk about. So I chose this film, um, first of all, because uh, recently I had an interview with George Stevens Jr., who is the son of the director, George Stevens, and it was a fantastic conversation. He was so kind to speak with me, um, but I wanted to, I know that was going to be released at the top of our season, so I wanted to have like a George Stevens film to watch with it. And also, I personally really, I really do love this film. It is problematic in many ways, but um, it's a very beautiful film. And it's Women's History Month when this uh, podcast comes out. And um, I feel like Elizabeth Taylor is a a pretty strong female presence in this film. Mm -hmm. And Edna Ferber, she wrote the novel that this is all based on. Um, So those were a couple reasons why I chose this film. Uh, Just to let people at home know, this is a very long film. It is a three hour, 21 minute film. My aunt would call it a blizzard film, films that you watch (laughs) during a blizzard. Uh, But I don't know. I don't think it feels, I don't think it feels that long. I think it it goes pretty smoothly. It doesn't feel like an insanely long film to me. How do you feel, Susanna? I didn't think it felt insanely long at all. I mean, it really pulls you into this epic, epic story. Um, Yeah, I agree. Okay, so plot synopsis for people at home. Also, AKA my mom, who will not watch this. Um, (laughs) This film covers several generations and it starts with uh, the love story between Jordan Benedict and um, Leslie, I can't remember her name when it wasn't Benedict. (laughs) Yeah, I can't either now. What was it? 
Well, Leslie from Maryland meets Jordan from Texas. Uh, we he he comes to Maryland first, so we see this beautiful, lush land that Leslie lives on. She's pretty spunky, um, and he's pretty traditional. But they hit it off right away, and he takes her back to Texas with him, and it's a whole other world than the world she's used to. And Texas is kind of almost a character, I would say, in this piece. And it looks pretty, pretty stark there. You know, she's leaving like kind of a comfortable life for wilderness. Um, the land is very bare. There's like dust and windstorms and not a lot of people are around. Um, so she's, you know, a fish out of water in this new land. And um, she's also faced with a lot of uh, societal issues that she's not totally used to. You know, um, men are not including her in conversations. Racism is everywhere towards Mexican people um, or indigenous people as well. So there's just a lot of racism happening. Um, and eventually it's like the story of how their love continues throughout time and they have children. And oh, and there's a man who worked on the farm named Jet Rink. Uh, Jordan has a sister named Luz. Luz is kind of old school about things and feels strongly about Jet Rink, won't let Jet Rink be fired, leaves Jet Rink a piece of land uh, on the whole big cattle property. Riata. He makes little Riata. And uh, there's oil on his land, so he ends up making a fortune. So he's kind of rags to riches, and we watch his story and how the riches never really fulfill him. And then we also see the story of Leslie and Jordan. They have children, and it's about, you know, um, how a lot of times Jordan can't really accept the change that his kids, he can't accept that they want to like live their own lives. Um, and uh, Jordan and little Jordan, young Jordan, who's played by Dennis Hopper, ends up marrying a Mexican woman. And, you know, Jordan Benedict is having a hard time with this because he's racist. And um, in the end, he, he kind of realizes like, mm, maybe racism isn't great. And you're like, yeah, it took you the whole fucking three hours to get there, but you're correct. Um, so I feel like that's giant in a nutshell, right? <laughs> Everybody's rich and they're in Texas. That is impressive. Yeah, it's, um, yes, you nailed that nutshell. Thanks. Well done. I was trying to keep it small because I was like, I can't do all the plot points of a three-hour movie. That's just too hard. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot. So as I mentioned, themes that are peppered throughout that I would just like love to get into. I feel like the biggest two themes of the film, to me, are racism and like fear of change throughout time. <laughs> mm -hmm. What what do you think? How did you feel about all this? Yeah, I would agree. And I also would add this idea of taming the land or of, of uh, how do I put it? Because the main character is so hell bent on controlling everything, including the land. You know, this idea of humans being in charge of everything and especially in his case white humans and like the patriarchal system like he has to be in charge of his wife too he yeah. can't handle that she's so you know vocal in her mm -hmm. opinions yeah um colonialism was another thing i wrote down yes it's so interesting this film is so interesting to me because it's it feels very progressive for 1956 when it came out you know, and I know that George Stevens was personally deeply affected by what had happened to him during World War II. You know, he was literally documenting Nazi concentration camps 
in and bringing that, that footage back. You know, he was in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, and I know that changed the way he saw the world and the way he directed. So after after that and after he gets home, we get a lot of very serious, thoughtful pieces from him. And so I think for 1956, this was a very progressive film, but watching it through the lens of now, it's it still seems so stunted. But it does, to me, show how people are so stuck in this like toxic masculine patriarchy. I know I use that word all the time on the show, but that does seem to be another theme that we see a lot here, especially in his treatment towards, well, anyone who's not a white man. And it's interesting too, because I was doing a little reading and saw that they filmed this in Marfa, Texas. And it was when I read that, it seemed as though uh, George Stevens wanted to be as far away from Hollywood as possible. And I have to wonder if that doesn't have to do with exactly what you're talking about, which is to free himself of the systems under which everyone was living in 1956. Well, Andy, you make a, a really good point because something that was striking me a lot about this particular viewing was how different it was from a lot of old Hollywood films, but how it's still not totally modern yet. It's this weird bridge between modern cinema and classic cinema because it's all shot on location and you can really see that. You can see that they're not on sound stages and they're really utilizing the light and the, the land. Um, to great effect, but there's still some, to me watching this movie, there's still some stilted stuff in there, sometimes with performances, uh, but a lot of times there's very fresh new ideas. And I think like watching James Dean be oh. on set in that, you know, anytime he's out in nature, you really feel what a contemporary film this is. Um, and by yeah. the way, even Leslie saying in the beginning, one of the first lines out of her mouth is about how Texas was colonialized. Was yeah. like She's basically like, oh, Texas was stolen from other people. And Jordan yeah, takes great offense. And she's like, but it's a fact. I just read it in this book. <laughs> like, why are you being crazy yeah. about this and behaving like it's your land? I brought up a bunch of topics in that. Please go down whichever rabbit hole you choose. Oh, of all the things there, I just There's said. so many. I mean, <laughs> I just love how you're talking about modern cinema uh, and classic, because even in the last scene, and I don't know, you can tell me you're much more an expert, but the way Rock Hudson is sitting on the sofa is so contemporary, his posture, just enabling a, a character who's romantic lead, you know, obviously he's aged, it's toward the end of the film, but there's this very relaxed way that they are with each other that seems very contemporary uh, compared to a more classic film where posture and is everything you know that there's a, yeah. a way of being that feels much less see feels um in the more classic films feels a little more produced this seems more naturalistic yeah i hadn't thought about that final scene in that way before but you're you're right he is sort of reclining and slouching and it really fits because he's doing it on like this mid-century modern furniture uh -huh. it's mid-century modern furniture in front of his giant oil painting that's been there the whole time that depicts right. like this idealized version of texas this old west and yes. he's slumped over on this modern couch and he doesn't feel like he totally fits but he does because his family is there his wife is there and they have loved each other and grown together this whole time but that's the big moment of the film too where she says to him you this way so not you when you were trying to impress me when you were making all that money and rounding up the cattle that didn't impress me what impressed me today was when you stood up for something that mattered because this whole time she's been trying to push everybody toward progress of like 
why are y'all so racist? <laughs> like, and so finally, finally, he stands up, you know, against the idea, at least of racism, like he kind of understands racism on a different level than he did before, thanks to his daughter in law, who, you know, at the end of the film, uh, Rock Hudson and his wife, Elizabeth Taylor, and, uh, and the other daughter and Juana, they go to a restaurant, and they just want to eat some chicken. Sarge's. They go to Sarge's. Oh, Sarge. And Sarge is a big, big burly man as big as Rock Hudson. And we have not seen a man as big as Rock Hudson in this whole film. Uh, Sarge makes it known that he does not want Mexican people in his restaurant because he's a huge asshole. And uh, finally, Jordan Benedict stands up to this and is like, oh, that's really wrong. I'm not okay with this. That's not okay. And he fights him and he loses the fight. He gets beat up. And that's the moment when Elizabeth Taylor said, I was, I was proud of you. I was after like all this time, that was when you were my hero. So yes. I don't know, I thought that was beautiful. And then I also wanna mention something else to me that makes this really contemporary is that there was not a lot of vanity around their age. Cause yes. there is, a, you know, you can tell that they're wearing age makeup. They put Rock Hudson, who's like a very handsome leading man in like kind of a, I don't wanna say a fat suit, but they make him bigger. Kind of paunchy. Paunchy, great word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth Taylor as well, she does appear older. She, you know, she's known for being the most beautiful woman at this time. And so for her to not be vain about that and to want to age and be seen in this way, the two of them kind of slouched together on this couch at the end of the film, looking older and feeling older. I don't know, to me, that is also more contemporary than something you might have seen at the time. Right. And actually, they, they have that scene in the bedroom um, when they're talking about we are, we're the older generation. Yes. Just kind of coming to terms with aging and what that is. Well, what's funny is that scene really struck me this time. I was struck by a lot of different things than I've normally been struck with mm -hmm. before when watching this movie. Mm -hmm. And one of them was that scene because you know, my generation is starting to, I'm, I'm the millennial generation and we're starting to move on and now it's Gen Z and, mm -hmm. and I'm feeling the pushed out and the, you're getting old and the, you know, and so <laughs> I know there are generations above me as well that have all dealt with this, but that, that struck me this time about yeah. kind of how everyone gets this time when they're young, when they don't really see the world beyond that. And then they're, you know, getting older and moving on and, and just having these realizations of, yeah. oh, we're, we're older. We're the older. We're old. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And and it, it's so interesting, too, in light of them both being gone for me to watch it and, and just really getting a, a full breadth of, you know, the, the cycle of life. The cycle of life and how some things still remain. Elizabeth Taylor's line to Rock Hudson, where she's like, our children have to live their lives themselves. We can't live them for them. And I'm like, that, that idea has been around forever. And that will always be a true thing. And then there's also the industrialization. Throughout the film, Jordan Benedict is fighting. He wants to keep the old way. He wants to be a rancher and herd cattle and do all that. But no, there's oil. And, you know, oil is money and no one else wants to run his big old ranch. So finally he like gives in and, you know, becomes industrialized. And then we see it in the background before when they would open the windows, we'd see sky and we'd see the land. Now, when we open the windows, we see all the oil wells. And so I just, that's happening now. I mean, with tech, <laughs> you know, people losing jobs to computers. It's just this, these, these things are still happening. And this, all of that was said in the forties, you know? Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, we do go through the time. I was guessing, isn't it, don't you think like late 20s through 56? That was my guess. When do you think the time period was for this film? That's a great point. Yeah, my, in fact, my husband was saying he thought 30s because of the cars. Because then we get into World War II. So yeah, I would say 30s. Like early 30s. So that's also funny that we're literally in a depression in this country, but we don't see it on screen because we're dealing with two very wealthy people from two different sides of the country who the depression didn't touch. Interesting, because when you first meet Rink, uh, Jet, mm -hmm. he... It, it looks like the Dust Bowl. And, and actually, same with the little town of, of the Mexican workers. Yes. Oh, I forget what the town was called. It's like, it's, oh, Bened it's like Benedicia or something. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a <sighs> yeah. Spanish turn on Benedict. Which is also so frustrating because you see the wealth that the Benedict family lives in and the total disregard for the people that work for them that live in this. So they show the giant Benedict house in the middle of nowhere. And then we go to this town and um, it's where like the, the workers that work for Benedict live and they live in these small shacks and they don't have proper care. They don't have doctors there. <laughs> like they're not treated right, despite the fact that they live off of this, you know, the, the rich people, like the rich people clearly should be paying them better and considering them, but the rich people in their brains don't even think of them as humans. It's until Leslie gets there, nobody sees I don't want to say, I don't know if they're all Mexican because I wasn't sure if some of them might be indigenous or not. I don't really yeah. know. Yeah, I thought so too. I figure yeah. another interesting thing too is, you know, Leslie comes from Maryland. And of course, when she goes home with her kids and they have that hilarious Thanksgiving dinner, who are the servants? All black people. And so I just thought, you know, here's Leslie, you know, what, how are we treating these people? And bup, 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 bup. And then I thought, um, okay, and she doesn't see the forest for the trees, apparently. Yeah, I was, I was 100% thinking that as well. Like Leslie has black servants in her home, mm -hmm. and uh, and yet, but I guess maybe in her mind, she's like, well, I treat, I treat the black servant in my home who is not given a name. Um, we don't know his name, nope. uh, but I, I treat him with respect. <laughs> and so you're kind of like, okay, yes, varying good, degrees of but... humanity. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it is jarring the first time she like meets the Mexican workers that work in the Benedict home and is introducing herself to them and trying to talk to them. And her husband's like, we don't do that here, and you know, they have their own doctor. No, we don't. You know, it, it's it's very um, to me, it feels very north and south. Because yeah. I feel like in North, in the North, there was less like overt racism at that time. It was more mm -hmm. covert. And so in the South, it was a lot more overt. And so mm -hmm. that's how it felt to me, like very overt racism versus like covert racism, like mm -hmm. still exists everywhere, but sometimes right. it's right loud in your face. And other times it's a little more subtle. And both being equally horrible. Yes. And also, I mean, this is kind of modern lens stuff later on too, but to me, what, what kind of bothered me sometimes throughout the film is Leslie would say things. She'd call out injustices or say things that weren't fair and they wouldn't get fixed and it didn't matter. Like yes. the scene where she, after dinner, the men sit and talk politics on one side and the women don't. They don't join them. They're off to the side and they don't really talk much. And it's all about the men. And Leslie tries to join the conversation and they will not let her. They will not let her speak. And she calls it out. She's like, oh, this, like, let me go get my spinning wheel, ladies, and like join <laughs> right. the harem of women. She's very vocal about how this is absolutely ridiculous 
but it never changes at all. You know, it's so interesting. I was just talking about this and there is, I find the character Leslie to be so remarkable in her ability to love her husband and disagree with him so fervently. And that kind of what that long span of loving him and throughout the film, they have these major knockout drag outs and you think, well, they're not going to make it. And then they, they, they keep coming back to each other. And it, in a way it just kind of, rem it reminds me of, you know, this human belief that we can make change, but often what's most important is to, to spur it. And then you have to let it happen. And she does. You know, she has the ultimate faith in her husband who has some really horrible belief, a, a, a really troubling belief system. And while she brings things to his attention and she never quiets herself, she also stays loving him. You know, there's so much, there's something to be said for that. I almost wondered early on, uh, I, I was wondering, they fall in love so quickly. It's, you know, like a day or two, they're in love and they're married, right? And um, they both bond over animals, over like this love of horses and animals. And so there was a little part of me that wondered, they both could kind of communicate in this other way with animals. So I was like, could they do that with each other? Was it a way of like, I see you, I, I know you. So even though you have these insane beliefs, I know who you are in your heart. And then she even mentions, she talks about like their honeymoon on the train scene, which is very sexy, by the way. Ooh, and yeah. A little bit shocking because they're like, at the time, this was during production code, and you can clearly see them sharing a bed. Like, yeah. that never, that didn't happen. One person had to have a foot on the floor in order for people to share a bed. So maybe they got away with it because on a train, I don't know. But they, they had some sort of very deep discussion on the train that she later brings up and mentions how meaningful it was to her. And he says, but that was confidential. And she says, I know, but I'm telling you, I treasure it. So I think she's seen this side of him. She knows that there's a, this other side that exists that isn't this like toxic macho, we follow tradition, I'm a man kind of man. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if that's where, you saying that just made me wonder if that's where she gets her hope from. But that was a really beautiful way of expressing it, that they constantly disagree, but that there is love there. I can't recall the name of the horse, the tragic situation. War winds. War winds. And so this beautiful horse that Elizabeth Taylor, Leslie, adores, who he comes to buy, and that's how they meet. And then so tragically, Vic's sister, Luz, which I do want to know, is Luz short for something? And if it is, what? That's such a good question. I don't, I never thought about it. <gasps> I'm like, who is called Luz? What? I have no, I've never, I don't even, you know, it doesn't even have a cultural connection. I, I mean, if anybody out there knows, please tell me. The source of the name Luz. L -U -Z. Because then they name one of their daughters Luz too. So, you know, they keep going with it. And I just didn't get it. But anyway, you know, so when Elizabeth Taylor arrives at the ranch in Texas, Luz, the sister, is not terribly delighted with this idea of this extremely strong woman. She says directly to Bick, hey, I run this place, right? So Luz tragically takes this beautiful war wins horse and um, I don't know. You you tell it, Sarah. It's well, 
depressing. <laughs> they, they mentioned early on uh, that Warwins is a little bit temperamental, and Elizabeth Taylor is the one that understands this horse and really knows how to ride this horse. Wait a minute. That is a great... That's like a metaphor. What the hell? That's what I was thinking, because <gasps> I was thinking of... Luz trying to tame Elizabeth Taylor. She's trying to tame Warwins, and it's not going to work. And Elizabeth Taylor is trying to tame Bick, but she knows how to ride him. Now, I'm not meaning that sexually. Whoa, I hadn't put that together. Girl. She knows how to go with temperamental. Like, because, yeah, everyone else was like, ooh, Warwins is tricky. It's a, you know, Warwins is a thoroughbred, but Warwins is tricky. And Elizabeth Taylor's like, no, I know how to ride this horse, and this horse is lovely. And you do see that. They actually have like horse acting. The horse does look beautiful and has like a deep connection with her, and it's lovely. But, um, yeah, Luz tries to tame the horse with violence. Oh. She tries to force the horse to carry her when the horse does not want to. And George the scene she's is damn good. Wow. Ooh, okay. like so good. That <laughs> that one shot, I could not get over it. There's this gorgeous, gorgeous shot from very far away of um it's like you see the sky and the land and you see Luz trying to ride this horse and it's gonna oh. buck her off over yes. and over through like all down the line of the line of the, the horizon. horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see her also, they do, they cut that with quick close-ups of her spurs drawing blood, digging into the horse. So she's trying to force. I hated that part too. It's actually the reason, I'm really glad you brought this part up. Oh, and I want to bring this back to, um, at one point, Leslie and, um, Jordan kind of split up a little bit because he just is being too much. He's being too restrictive and forceful. He's trying to force his kids to be macho. And, you know, my daughter has to do this. My son has to do this. And he's just so too much super she's sexist because like, he's like the so boy sexist. it just like that poor little pumpkin girl yeah he, he's just being awful and so Leslie's like look i need a break from you i need to go back to maryland and i need a break and he eventually realizes how much he loves her and wants her around and she realizes the same so he goes to get her and um there's a line he says to her uh she says to him look if i go back you need to know i haven't changed i'm still gonna be outspoken and say you what go, i think girl and you're like, yes, Leslie. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, us Texans like a little vinegar in our collard greens. That's it keeps right. things interesting. <laughs> so yes. I feel like that was kind of how he views Warwins, his view of the horse versus Luz's view. I, that's yeah. how like the difference between the two of them too, of like, he does have the capacity to change and see something else. And Luz could not change. She couldn't. She couldn't even let another woman into the home like it was she they're so staunch and strict and they mentioned later she'd kept women from being around him this viewing of this movie for me was very interesting because i've seen this movie several times and i've seen it like at different stages of my life i think probably the first time i saw it i was 14 and i've seen it you know at maybe every five years since then and um this viewing not only was i relating to the scene where they were saying you know we're older now but I was noticing other characters that I've never, I've always thought of kind of as villains. Like if you had asked me before this particular viewing, who are the villains in this piece? I'd be like, Luz, Jet Rink, racism. <laughs> like I'd say all these other things and racism is still the villain. Yes. Um, but I was much more sympathetic with Luz and Jet than I had ever been before. And they still say and do horrible things. They still are mm. racist, but I, I saw Luz in a different light this time, specifically in the scene when she's with all her friends. Yeah. Um, because I realized, I think in the past, you you look at her as being sort of, um, I don't know, not malignant. What's the word I'm looking for? Like, she wants to harm Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. But that's not really the case. She just doesn't want anything to change. And all Elizabeth Taylor does is bring change. Yeah. 
So when you see her with her friends, kicking up her feet, having a good time. Yeah. Even saying things like she kind of shows her self-consciousness about being single. You can tell she maybe wants to get married. Maybe she does want jet rink. Who knows? But she says something like, well, I'm the only one now. I'm the only single person. And they're like, well, you couldn't have a man because you love ranching too much. Um, so I don't know. You get like more of a sense of her loneliness and more of a sense of how she is with her friends. Um, so that lit her up for me a little more this time. And same with Jet Rink. You see he's hiding all the time. And you see this kind of like devastated little boy that just wants to to be loved but can't be part of a group. He's such a loner. He can never be with other people. And he, he was much more heartbreaking to me this time because in the past I've just been like, God, you're a dick, Jet. I really don't like you. Yeah. And then this time I was I was seeing more sides of him or I was I guess I was being more sympathetic with yeah. what his character was potentially going through. He really reminds me of like a Judd Fry in Oklahoma. You know, I mean, just a man who is so broken and hurting. Um, I, wow. I mean, and that's a good comparison. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, Jet is and he wants so much to be a part of that world and they've shut him out so tightly. That's what's such an amazing thing to consider too in the context of the movie about racism that classism is debilitating and horrific it wrecks his life it 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 tears away at his ability to be happy or to you know have a a full life because he all he wants is what they have and they keep they never allow him to get near it but he also is kind of a creeper like you get why they don't because all of the early scenes with him he's lurking he just doesn't know how to talk to people you know right he's antisocial and he, he has like a special relationship with luz it was super heartbreaking to read first of all james dean died before the film was finished yes and when i read a tiny bit about how it was according to a few accounts of Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean, that there was a real triangle, a triangulation of the three of them, and that both of the men wanted Elizabeth Taylor's friendship. And I thought to myself, especially reading a little bit about what George Stevens said about working with James Dean, him fearing for his life, just the way in which he was in the world, driving fast, taking chances, um, that he did at least one of the things I read, he felt fearful for the future for him. And then in light of what really happened, oh, just heartbreaking. Well, and for people that may not know, James Dean, I mean, James Dean is a very iconic uh, film actor who was only really in three three films, but he's so, he's so indelible, so iconic in those roles that he's become a part of our lexicon. And he died tragically. I think he was 24 years old when he died mm, yep. in a racing accident. He yeah. was very into racing fast cars. And um, I don't know that he was racing at the time that he passed. I know he had an accident and I know that he had been speeding earlier in the day and had gotten a speeding ticket, but I still don't entirely understand how the accident happened. And another thing I read, which I, if anyone feels this is 100% unfounded, who knows? Rock Hudson was gay. And um, there was one account I read that there might have been some attraction between Rock Hudson and James Dean. And then that caused a terrible rift. Oh. Um, and that Elizabeth Taylor was trying to iron it out. But who knows? Like, you know, I was just poking around on the interwebs, which can be kind of dangerous. Well, 
you're right. Well, because James Dean was um, was bisexual, and Rock Hudson was gay and closeted. Mm -hmm. You know, both mm -hmm. men. I don't think. I don't know if James James Dean probably wasn't out. I'm not sure. I, don't I also think so. believe that I heard um, James Dean had been sexually assaulted as um, a teenager by a priest. So mm. that's awful too. Um, so I know that they each had like kind of terrible things in general <laughs> happen. Yeah. It's like that James Dean had terrible things and I'm sure like Rock Hudson being gay but not being allowed to be out and then he eventually dies of AIDS in the 80s. And Elizabeth Taylor is a very um, outspoken AIDS activist um, and very much in support of the LGBTQ plus community. So there's all of that factoring in that I had not thought about till right now. Those are very good points that you bring up, but I didn't know that they didn't get along on set. And it actually, I don't know, it really helps with these performances. Doesn't it? It's, it's so interesting because they almost feel, they do feel like old world and new world. What I said mm -hmm. earlier about how this feels like an old school film and a more modern film, to me, James Dean represents the modern in the way he's storytelling, in the way he's doing things. And Rock Hudson represents like the old guard kind of, even though they're not, you know, he's not that old at this time. But the way James Dean acts on camera is so interesting. Yes. It's so different from how everybody else does it. You know, it's, there's like a way that we teach of how you act on camera. And, you know, this is on your close up, you do this and, you know, you want the camera to get all of you. And James Dean is playing with all of these other things. He's like living it as much as he can. And he hides. He hides yeah. constantly behind the hat glasses. <laughs> and in fact, I read that he um, they were going to do looping because he had mumbled so many lines but he died before they could do it. I was wondering about that. I hadn't looked into it, but he was mm -hmm. mumbling a lot. And I wondered if that was the choice, if it was, you know, even keeping him one more layer separate from us. Mm -hmm. um, and then the tragedy of that character, clearly, you had mentioned this earlier, he clearly wants to be in with the in crowd. And you could see this when Leslie goes to his house and she sees that he tr he's trying to be refined in his home. You know, he has those books that are like how to speak proper English. And he has like the tea and a tea kettle there because um, he so desperately wants to be a part of that. So then this is my question for you about all of this and what you think. So why, even when he gets money, even when he becomes the wealthiest of them all, why can't he fit in? What, why, what is this wall between everybody? What do you think that is? He is socially inept. And I think he believes that money and having money is the obstacle for him. And then I think he finds once the money comes that actually the money wasn't the obstacle for him. It was his own inability to connect. I mean, we obviously see at the end of the film, he's got a massive drinking problem. I'm pretty sure the drinking problem happens in his youth because he, when he's serving Elizabeth Taylor tea, remember he is at the sink and he takes a shot of alcohol to kind of calm his nerves. So I feel as though he's has a dark past that is, we don't really learn about that he's hurting. Um, and you just reminded me of another scene that deeply affected me this time that I would say maybe in the past hasn't touched me this in this way before, which is his scene with um, Luz the second. Yes. Uh, when he so we should mention like early on in the film, it's clear that he Jet Rink played by James Dean and Luz the first as played by Mercedes McCambridge. Um, I don't actually think that they do have a romantic relationship. People speculate later on that they do. I think they just have a connection. I think that they understand each other. I do too. I, I absolutely believe that. And I think it's really interesting too that Luz is this insanely powerful woman, which 
you know, as we are saying in, in the day, it's interesting to me that Luz has so much power because when Elizabeth Taylor comes, how, how come Bick allows Luz to be, act like a man? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to it. All I can assume is that it's because she isn't feminine. She doesn't make, I mean, feminine, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like feminine, when you- Stereotypically. Stereotypically like 19, feminine or like feminine 30s. appearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She doesn't like- She's very Elizabeth masculine. T- she's very masculine. She, and she kind of like scoffs at anything that would have been deemed as outwardly feminine. So I think just totally rejecting any form of femininity, including getting married and having kids, including, you know, like not eating at the table and not like all of these other things. Right. She's taking on this masculine persona. And oh my God, something that you just put in my head that I didn't see before, but I see it now. The first time when Luz is eating breakfast with Elizabeth Taylor, she puts her feet up on the couch. And then James Dean does that for the rest of the film. There's a scene when he's in the back of the car and he's pretending Uh it's his car, but it's not. He puts his feet up and the scene when he's in his office and puts his feet up. And I was like, I didn't realize that there was a link between Luz and the feet up and James Dean and the feet up till right now. I'm sure that was a detail that was on purpose. But the putting of the feet up was to show Elizabeth Taylor, I'm not not like you. I'm uncouth, like on purpose. Yeah, and it's interesting too that Bick and Luz's parents, we don't know them. And it is just so interesting. I just wonder how long Bick and Luz have been managing the ranch. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And it's like they clearly took in all of the the negative lessons of their parenthood about, you know, well, my dad made me do this, so I'm going to do this for my kid. And my kid has to do this because I did this. They clearly took that seriously and carried it on. And the generation after them did not. And so I wonder what was there that made them take that so seriously. Yeah. And the fact that because Bick keeps talking about my father and his father, but where's Luz fit in? It's almost like she's scared to not be a Benedict. Yeah. To be feminine, to take on, like, at back in the day, you would have had to take another man's name. Being a Benedict is so strong within all of them that even the idea yeah. of changing that, I don't know. You're right, but where does Luz fit in? I'm just so mystified because they had been on the ranch for over 100 years. They've been on the ranch for over 100 years, and you just made me think about something else, too, which is that there was a lot of talk that Luz was the one really running things and not Jordan. So Jordan maybe felt like he had to prove himself. Like, no, my sister isn't doing it. I'm the boss around here, not her. Interesting. I think that's a really great point. But you're right. Luz kind of gets dropped through the cracks of her whole existence. And then she very tragically dies. The thing that she's supposed to be the best at, riding horses, you know, that's the thing that that killed her because of the way that she was trying to do it. And then she broke the horse in addition, which is heartbreaking and another fabulous metaphor about violence and taking something that's not yours and yes because they do they do shoot warwins because warwin's leg is broken in fact bick shoots him which is very jordan why do they call him bick i don't know i wonder if it's because they're all named jordan benedict and they all need to have different names <laughs> so i feel oh, like yeah. bick, you know yeah. he's bick and his son is jordy that was my guess but i don't i don't actually know their daughter's name is luz so who who knows what the heck yeah, wasn't it fun in the film to keep seeing all these actors? You're like, oh my gosh, Earl Holloman. Everybody, like Sal Mineo shows up. Oh, um, no. <laughs> like all these people. Incredible. That are, 
incredible just Dennis Hopper's there mm-hmm. um who else oh Mercedes oh Mercedes McCambridge I want to mention plays the original Luz mm-hmm. and I actually think she's she's fabulous because oh. she she has so much range and so many different things mm-hmm. my favorite thing she does is actually a radio show she's on one of my favorite old-timey radio shows called um oh which one is it? I think it's called defense attorney hmm. there's so many that are like yeah she's defense attorney and she mm-hmm. plays Marsha Ellis Bryant a defense attorney love it she's great Oh, man, she always yeah. solves the case. She always fixes it. Um, her clients always win. Um, <laughs> and they're always innocent, too. But yeah, I think she's she's a really talented, fabulous actress. Um, so I wanted to call her out. And then um, I actually wanted to tie back in. So Carol Baker is the second Luz, who's also fabulous in this. Um, and the moment that kind of gutted me this time was uh, Jimmy Dean's attempt. I shouldn't call him Jimmy Dean. We're not close. James Dean's attempt when he's proposing to her and her rebuff of his proposal mm-hmm. um in the past i've never thought his proposal was real in the past because he's wearing sunglasses and he's drunk and he's trying to like hit on Luz a little bit but you're not really sure if he's doing it because he loves leslie so much or if he's doing it because he really wants to marry Luz. in the past i would have always said leslie but this time around i was like oh i think he actually wants Luz, and he's trying so hard but he can't say the things he needs to say to get this proposal out and she's kind of seeing who he is what do you make of that whole scene do you think he was really genuine and really asking her to marry him um, and do you think she was really saying no in that moment? I don't think she was really saying no. I think she just wanted to look pretty in her pretty dress and have him propose again, if I'm being honest. You know, I think it's both because I do think that Jet struggles with his mental health. And I feel as though his desire to be a part of that world is so great that he is in love with Luz too, <laughs> for want of a better term, because of, well, she's obviously a beautiful young woman. And I would imagine it would feel incredibly powerful to marry the daughter of your horrible enemy. Well, and she's got a little bit of Leslie in her. She's got that wit. She's got, you know, all of that about her. So the reason I was taking it so seriously this time when I hadn't before, I guess, was when he took his glasses off because he's wearing sunglasses throughout and hiding and hiding and hiding. And he takes his sunglasses off to talk to her or to try to talk to her. And so I was taking it more seriously than I ever had before this time and thinking, oh, I wonder. I think he wanted to marry her. And then the truth comes out when she goes back with Uncle Bolly mm-hmm. to find him because she's so brokenhearted. And it seems to me as though she's going to return to say yes. And then she hears him talking about her mother. She realizes it's not about me, even though I think it is partially about her, just like you say, but she carries Leslie with her. There's no way that Luz could not evoke Leslie. It's like in Little Women, the movie, the 1994 one, when Amy yes. says to Lori, I want to be loved for me, not for my family. Yes. Uh, it's like that. But I'm glad you brought in the point of the other implications of that, like the implications of potential love, but also like how powerful would this make me feel to, yeah. you know, marry Luz. But I, I also think he felt like she was rejecting him. And I don't know that she really was. 
in my mind, it was like middle ground where she was almost rejecting it because it wasn't a pure question. If he had asked her to marry him, she probably would have said yes, I think. But because he wasn't like, I love you and this is why I love you, since he was kind of shady about it, I think she was kind of like, well, I'm not in my cute dress and I don't know. I don't know if this is a real, I'll wait till it's like real and I'll be wearing my pretty dress. This is my mind of Luz too. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think you have something there because I think she's struggling with the situation, just like you said. And it's not pretty how he's behaving. And yet she's immensely attracted to him. So, and then it's funny too, because at the end, she goes to Hollywood. <laughs> to become an actress. Yes. And you're like, I see that for you, Les. I see that. <laughs> Isn't that so hilarious too? Because then Jordan, AKA Bick says, an actress. I mean, it's like the worst. <laughs> Here's this guy who's like a horrible racist. I mean, and it, it's just the worst thing he can imagine would be to have a daughter who was an actress. That would be just the ultimate oh. in insult. They pan to Elizabeth Taylor right after that, and she chuckles, I think, a little. If in my head yeah. she chuckles, maybe she doesn't. Yeah. And there's so much double entendre there. Of like, of course, she's laughing because she is an actress. Yeah. Um, I also want to put out there, I didn't know this till today, but James Dean went to school with Carol Baker. They went oh. to the actor's studio together. They were in the same class. Oh, my so gosh. her being Luz and him being Jet Rink and them having that moment together is, like, extra special because of that, that reason. Mm. Isn't that amazing? And he's only 24 and pulling this off, by yeah. the way. I read Elizabeth Taylor was 23, he was 24, and Rock Hudson was 29. It's crazy. They do such a great job. They really do. They especially feel like old souls toward the end. They, they get it. They, they even do. make his hairline look like it's receding. And you're like, wow, look at this. You know, it's really cool, too, actually, as I think about this film and how why George Stevens might have wanted to take them on location in that way is very likely to isolate your actors in that way, especially in the Hollywood of 1956. I mean, I guess similarly today with paparazzi and all that, to just kind of control the environment in which your actors are living must have been really helpful. I was listening to this interview about John Hughes and he said mm -hmm. when he's directing, that's what he prefers to have because it creates an environment among your actors. They have to rely on each other when they're away from it all. You know, they're all staying in the same hotel. It, he's like, it's especially great if there's nothing around, if there's like one restaurant or like one place they can go because yeah. they really, they bond in that way. And he's like, we did that for The Breakfast Club and it was incredible. You know, yeah. we ended up getting out of these young actors, putting them in this environment. And you can feel that. And I think the family bonds come through in this as well. And you're right, maybe it is because they isolated them. And and also if what we, or what I read was true, that it also created some strange strains that also probably fed what, what they were doing in the film. There is an element of taking your care of your actors in that way. You know, there's a, a caring piece, of, I think, of that. I do want to add about George Stevens, something I found out from the interview with his son that was mm -hmm. like, great was just, he had such a wide scope. He was talking about how his dad always had so much foresight about what makes a movie great. And so he was like, I remember, you know, driving home from the Oscars with my dad and there was the Oscar like sitting in the middle seat. We had just oh won for Blaze in the Sun. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, we won this and this is lovely, but only time will tell if we've made a good movie or not, if it lives on. So he's got this generational mindset almost that I think you can sense in this film, like forward thinking oh. into the future. And actually that brings me to the final shot because I wanted to ask you about this too. But the final shot of the movie is, so Elizabeth Taylor has just told Jordan she's proud of him for like standing up to racism. 
and th they show um each of their kids you know dennis hopper's character had married a mexican woman named juana I forgot to write down the actress's name, but I looked her up and she was in fact Mexican. So I was a little bit relieved about that. They weren't, you know, casting a white person and putting her in brown face, though they did do that with several of the other actors, it looked like. Um, but anyway, their baby, like, you know, has brown skin and the other sister's baby has white skin. And so they do a close up of each of the baby's faces, you know, the white baby with the blue eyes first and then the baby of like Mexican descent. And that's how the movie ends. And to me, I'm like, is that telling us that like we're all the same and that racism is dumb? Like, what what do you think that shot means? Like, what what are they trying to tell us? Gosh, for me, it really just felt as though the director was saying, let's look at the world through child's eyes, which wasn't, I, I didn't feel, I mean, I, I of course I noticed their color, their skin, and yet they're in the same place, they're of the same blood and Bick says you know he's talking about how you know he's not going to take guff from a sheep and a what a, a sheep and a, and a goat but they also chose a black goat and a white sheep and they had the black goat behind the child of Mexican no. scent and they they did I did not notice that and they had you the white good. sheep behind the white kid because I was just like what are you trying to say here I don't understand I did not get that and he does that other he shoots the um little boy who's who's actually jordan benedict the fourth if i'm not mistaken yes you're correct jordan benedict the fourth when jordan benedict the second is beating up sarge they have uh, several shots of the baby watching so i i felt more inclined or i feel more inclined to believe that it is a about imagining ourselves looking at the world through child's eyes. That's what I'm more inclined to, to think. And then potentially, how can you hate a child based on the color of their skin? Both of those things, maybe. Do you, do you like that? I like that because this is a tender innocent. And until we put words and ideas on humans, there aren't any. Something that also bothered me is that um, they never really give the people who are experiencing racism a voice. So yeah. like we see Juana experience racism a lot and we mm -hmm. see a lot of racism towards Mexican people happen a lot throughout the film. And mm -hmm. I feel like there it's like the idea of like, well, they should just shut up and bear it. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God. Like we're viewing this through such a white lens that it's like the white people being like, this is wrong. And I'm gonna punch the guy that did this to you. Right. And you're kind of like, but what, what does she feel? I wanna know what Juana feels. And again, I think this movie is very progressive for the time. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> if you think about like the civil rights movement is going on in the South, like, yes, very progressive for the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, they don't really give the people of color any sort of voice. Um, I feel like they maybe try with, I, I wonder if Sal Mineo's part was bigger at all. When Angel passes away, Oof. In the, that moment just took me down this time um, because it's so interesting. There's the, the newspaper clipping, Angel returns to Texas and there's a beautiful picture of him as a young man. And then you realize he's returning in a coffin. And that I thought was another opportunity uh, because the emotion of Angel's mom and dad and then Bick goes to the funeral, which is a real turning point because he's the only white man there and hands the parents the Texas flag. 
Angel's the most promising of the young men there. And he was, I think the most, he mentioned several times that he wishes his son were more like Angel and that he's so proud of Angel. And so it's like, you're getting closer to him realizing how, you know, <laughs> that racism is bad. But right. I feel like through Angel they do that. But then it also, um, Angel is the boy that Elizabeth Taylor saves in the beginning. That's when right. she goes to visit the village on her own and she realizes that, you know, this woman is very sick and her baby is very sick. She's the one that gets a doctor over there. She's the one that makes sure that that baby is taken care of. And I actually wondered if Bick killed her horse because he was pissed at her for leaving after Les's funeral. I almost took it that way of like, oh, he was pissed at her for like helping someone else's baby instead of standing by him and babying him. But Angel grows to be like the son he wished he had and then passes away. And then I was also struck by when the white boys came home from war, there's a huge parade for them. And then when Angel comes back, it's literally in a casket early in the morning and only his family is there. You know, I was really struck by the, the difference showing like the treatment. It was segregated, definitely segregated. To me, Angel's funeral and his return felt honorable. And I thought George Stevens really underlined, you know, his patriotism and uh, yeah, it was heartbreaking. They do show him, you know, being a war hero and mm -hmm. being honorable. And you wonder the life he could have lived had he been able to return if he wasn't killed in the war. Like you, yes. you have those wonderings. And then there's the great scene too, before, before he ever goes to war, when he's a young boy, he's maybe a year older than little Jordy. Um, and they get him a pony and he just is like, I am not getting on that horse. It's, it's, I've got to say, I don't know how George Stevens got those babies to cry like that in the Thanksgiving scene. I mean, there are so many scenes yeah. when the babies are crying. I'm like, what did you people do to those babies? Because they were pissed. <laughs> you make a great point. They were ticked. You're right. There's um, the scene she's describing is uh, so Jordan Benedict has a son, Jordy Benedict, who we learn, you know, right away at his fifth birthday. So first of all, he totally ignores his daughter. He like yeah. acts like it's not her birthday, too, even though they're twins. They're twins. <laughs> and the minute that kid's born, the boy. He does not want to be a rancher. Jordan puts him on the horse and is like, you're going to ride this horse. And the boy is just sobbing and shrieking. And he he wants to be a doctor. He gets off the horse and goes to play with his doctor kit. And that maintains throughout his life. And I'm like, what parent is upset their kid wants to be a doctor? <laughs> like, who who does that upset? Texans. Um, so there is that. And his kid turns out to be like a lovely human and doctor. And Dennis Hopper. Oh, but the daughter ends up liking like animal husbandry and like wants to be a rancher. Right. And I was like, why is this such an issue for you? Yeah. One of your kids loves ranching. Who cares? Why do you care so much that it's a girl? It's kind of cool when I think back on those moments and one of them being when Angel gets on the pony after his son goes ballistic. Angel gets on and rides this pony as though he's born to it. And you can see Jordan watching him. And I think there are several of these moments in the movie where you can see the wheels turning. My ideas don't make sense. Ooh, yeah. I do want to talk about Edna Ferber for a minute. She wrote this, this novel. Um, she did not write the screenplay, but she wrote the novel that this is based on. And I know um, she was a Jewish woman who experienced a ton of anti-Semitism when she lived in Iowa for a while with her family. 
And um, I know as an adult, she was very outspoken about anti-Semitism. And if she knew she was at the house of an anti-Semite, she would get every like Jewish person there and they would leave. <laughs> She'd be like, nope, we're out of here. We don't do this. Um, and yeah, so I know she was very outspoken herself about that. And I wonder how much, because I, like I said, I mean, she wrote, she wrote other novels like Cimarron, which I feel like would be very racist through today's lens, but deals with issues like this. You know, it's about... Um, Native Americans, right? Isn't Samara? I've seen it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not sure to be honest. So I feel like, I, if I remember correctly, I think it's also about um, like racism involving interracial marriages. And I believe it's about Native American people, but I think I saw it like a decade ago and I was like, meh. Um, so Big is about immigrants and immigrants succeeding and a woman um, like, going on after her husband passes away and like having to be strong and be on her own. I mean, she wrote Showboat, which also has an interracial marriage in it. Right. Um, so it's like she's very mindful of these things, um, but she herself is Jewish. So I, I almost wonder if she felt like she couldn't write about the Jewish experience or that people might not accept the Jewish experience. Yeah. So she put it into other facets that maybe she didn't have um, the authority to write on, but still did. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because she never married, um, never had children. It kind of a little bit luz. Yeah. There was a quote that she had written in a novel uh, called Dawn O'Hara. And so this is a, a spinster, quote unquote, character that speaks. Being an old maid was a great deal like death by drowning, a really delightful sensation when you ceased struggling. Wow. So I'm like, I wonder if that was her life experience. What an amazing quote. So George Stevens, no one has a mean word to say about the man. He's a, he was apparently very kind of quiet and shy um, and a very good director. <laughs> and I feel like, um, I mean, we talked about him a little bit in Woman of the Year, and we're going to like talk about him more with his son. But he started off in the world of comedy, and he did a lot of comedies early in his career and a lot of like lighter fare. You know, he was in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in World War II. I had mentioned this earlier and did a lot of documentaries about what was happening over there. And he really uh, he has footage of the concentration camps like Dachau. He has footage of that. He saw that firsthand. And so he comes home and then makes all of these beautiful masterpieces um, that are very serious. And he was friends with Catherine Hepburn. And she had said, I love George Stevens as a director. And it breaks my heart that he never went back to making comedies after the war. But like, look at the films we got. <laughs> so, um, right. yeah. And his first big hit, his like big break, because he had done like 35 Laurel and Hardy shorts. Like he had uh, been a DP and writer on them. And uh, he does Alice Adams. And that's his like breakout with her. And Catherine Hepburn wrote about him in her book. I just read her book over Christmas. And she said, um, she said, when I first met him, I was concerned because he didn't say a word at our meeting. And um, she was like, I wondered if he was like an idiot or not. And she said, and then later on, you know, like right before we were about to start the picture, we had a conversation and I realized, first of all, he just hadn't had time to read the script yet and he didn't want to say anything. So he didn't sound dumb. And two, uh -huh. he's incredibly bright. <laughs> so mm. I loved that. Mm, I I'm like, it. I thought we made a big mistake. He didn't say a word. So yeah, Alice Adams was his kind of big hit at first. He directs um, Talk of the Town, Woman of the Year, Swing Time. Uh, which is a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers picture, which unfortunately oh. uses blackface. But besides that, is a great film. So I if you can... forgot about Swing Time. That's fantastic. Um, he does Gunga Din, The More the Merrier. And then like his when he comes back after the war, his films are I Remember Mama, which is like a Swedish immigrant story. Um, he does oh, yes. Shane. 
he does a place in the sun and he does giant and he does the diary of Anne Frank. So he's to me, Shane, a place in the sun and giant are like, whoa, what a trifecta one right, right after the other. Like, yeah. Wow. All, all about outsiders and yep. oh my gosh. Yes. All about outsiders. Great yeah. point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I kind of touched on this earlier before we head out about Texas being its own character. Yeah. I think a very smart thing that George Stevens does is he shows us Maryland first and how like lush Maryland is. And then yep. when we get to Texas, especially at first, it's literally like tumbleweed and desert and sky. <laughs> And then over time, it took like, what, 20 years, but Leslie finally gets some grass outside of that house. Right. When I saw the grass and the swimming pool. Yeah, it's interesting because when we're in Maryland, you know, as you said, it's lush greenery, this beautiful, beautiful uh, estate uh, and this, you know, she's wearing traditional English riding gear. And then you get to Texas and it's just you know, just a wild, just wild. There are like warm things about Texas too that I didn't anticipate liking towards the end. Like mm-hmm. when they all go to Jet's big, you know, hotel and uh, airport opening. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're all buddies, but when they come in, there's no ceremony. The women are just like, hi, how you doing everybody? Nice to see you. And you're like, oh, right. that's so refreshing. That is refreshing. It's refreshing to not have the pretension, you know? Yes. And that is such, it's a really cool distinction because Vashti, the woman who would have married Bick had he never gone to meet Elizabeth Taylor, or that's what they say. She almost gets mini Pearl toward the end, you know? It's just interesting, that distinction between the good manners versus the Wild West, you know? And what's in between that? Well, I think what's in between that is Elizabeth Taylor, because she finds the good in both. Yes. It's like what you had said earlier, how she loves Bick throughout, even when he is, you know, saying awful things and doing awful things and being awful, she still Mm -hmm. loves him. And I think as a viewer, I would come in with certain expectations of meeting people from Texas for the first time in this time period, especially. And she gives, she meets everyone where they're at. She does not judge anybody. I mean, except for the men that are like not including her, she judges them and rightly so and tells them to their face what she's thinking. But she really doesn't judge anyone. Um, she lets everyone be themselves. Except for the servants at her hometown in Maryland. Except for the servants at her hometown in Maryland. I did love the sister, her sister, and how her sister had a crush on her boyfriend. And when she leaves, she's like, can I have your boyfriend? Can I have David? And then that's who she marries later. I love that tie-in. Yeah. And isn't it sweet too? Elizabeth Taylor's personality is much more Texan than it is East Coast. Ooh. The sister is is going along and wants to marry David and wants this mannered life. And Elizabeth Taylor, would she have become the woman that she became without Texas giving her the opportunity to grow into it? There would have been injustice for her to serve, but maybe she would have been blind to it. Like she was blind to having like black servers. Maybe she would have been blind to that injustice, but seeing it more bluntly, she was able to like hone herself into someone who, had, who could make more of a change. Yeah. And, and, and probably just like you said, she couldn't see the forest for the trees in her own, in her own home growing up. But then when she left and saw for her, it was much more visible. I wanted to make sure we talked about Pedro because you had mentioned this earlier too, about Pedro the turkey. I thought, I thought it was so interesting how kids who grew up on a Texas cattle farm, who probably saw animals slaughtered like all the time, uh-huh. go to Maryland, fall in love with a turkey, name the turkey Pedro, and then get served that turkey for dinner and lose their minds over it. 
I, I thought that was, it was a, it's like a funny scene, but also I was like, oh, this is kind of telling. I feel like they're not as Benedictian as they would like to be because they're so upset over the loss of this animal. Right. Well, and similarly, because for instance, remember when Elizabeth Taylor went out on the cattle drive and, and she wanted to go and remember Luz tells her, you know, the sun, you're not going to like the sun. You're not going to be able to do it, this, that, and the other. And she pushes through and she goes, but I wonder how much of the real life and death, the killing on a ranch and so much of the violence, you know, was kept so far away from the women and children. Ooh, I guess you're probably right. That's kind of funny. Like it wasn't really a part of their life. Like it was how they lived. It was their living, but they didn't have to like see it. They didn't have to see the ugliness of it. Yeah. I wonder. They show us that scene of branding the cattle, especially the babies. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God, they're doing this to their own kids. And yeah. Elizabeth, like, we're going to force you. You're a Benedict. You have to be this and you have to do this. And she has that line about, are you going to brand me? It reminded me of The Power of the Dog. Which I have not seen. I don't really recommend it. It's heartbreaking and it's painful. And that the, the shot of the house when she first arrives in Texas and she says, oh, the house, it's huge. And it's this lonely, giant mansion in the middle of nowhere. Same exact shot of In the Power of the Dog, the house in Montana. Oh, and I also know that that movie has to do with like macho, you know, toxic masculinity, that yes. stuff too. Yeah. And um, for me, this has gone through my mind quite a bit, is what are the roots of American culture and American history is violence to take and and this isolationism and this taming the land and owning, you know, owning things that really are not ownable. And um, uh, if you ever watch uh, The Power of the Dog um, or even look at some of the photos, you'll, you'll probably see a real... The influence. Mm-hmm. You just brought up something so like important and then it reminded me of something kind of frivolous that I want to mm -hmm. bring in. Sure. So I'm going to like clumsily shift to Bring it. Like yes, colonialism and stolen land, like yes, acknowledging that cuz they, you know, that is a big part of all of this. Um but the house itself, what strikes me about it, I mean in the beginning, like what you had mentioned, we see it from afar, it's this giant mansion, but then once we're inside, it's it looks like it has not changed in a 100 years. Yes. It is the red tapestries on the wall or the wall, mm -hmm. whatever that is, the wallpaper, it looks so old fashioned and yeah. so stodgy and so dark. Yeah. And so when they show us like throughout time, we know things have lightened up because the house has lightened up. Yeah. The walls are now cream colored and there's furniture you can be comfortable in and sit in. And like, it's such a more welcoming, loving space after Leslie's presence is there for a while. And I feel like her full presence isn't totally allowed until they have that remarriage scene with her sister when her sister's getting married, but it's like Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson are taking the vows too, that kind of thing. Yes, <laughs> I love that scene. It reminded me of um, Best Years of Our Lives. So oh. I was like, oh, they do that in the Best Years of Our Lives too. So um, good. But the, uh, yeah, I, I feel like after that scene, that is when she has decided and realized that Texas is her home and after that scene, that's when we cut to our next narrative several years later. And then when they're on the sofa and, you know, he says, maybe you should go home and home. 
Where do you think I've been? For 25 years. And of course it had to be 25 years because that's what the uncle said in the beginning. Just wait 25 years. And that's she's right. like, 25 years, that's so long from now. So by the end, we're 25 years later. They tied it all in a pretty bow for us and I appreciated it because it was a lovely epic film. Oh, um, so beautiful. So I think we've probably talked, we've done it. I think we did it with the movie part. Let's head into Woo. any modern lens issues we have really quick before any. we do double feature. Everything. I, you know, all of them. The brown face, especially on the babies, was so problematic. Like, it was so, it was hard. It was hard yeah. to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that it was a different time. So, like, I understand that things were done differently and mm -hmm. that this was seen as okay. And I don't think, like, knowing what I know about George Stevens, I don't think he would ever intentionally, <laughs> you know, right. harm. Um, so, yeah, the, the brown face was hard. Um, and we mentioned earlier for me, like, not only seeing the white point of view and not seeing any people of color have any opinions or feelings about racism, you know? Mm, yes. We kind of get it in the, the one scene in the beauty parlor. Oh, um, yeah. And then having the white people decide how to handle it too. Like it yes. makes me very uncomfortable when Jordy Jr., when he's mm -hmm. like, my wife was treated bad. Let me drag her around town after she right. just had a very upsetting episode and try to punch Jet Rink everywhere I go. And I'm like, this exactly. is not good for your wife. Like, come right. on. Yeah, no one says, are you okay? Yeah. And when Jordan says, there's, and also there's so many racist things said throughout, just like constant racist names, racist talk, constant. racist thoughts, constant. And, and sexist. And sexist. I mean, it's just <laughs> incredible. Oh, I did write down a good quote about Jet, though. This yeah. has nothing to do with racism, but um, someone said, he's a rough diamond. And then someone said, he's a rough rhinestone. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, that's a good quote. That is a good one. I did notice that they played Rounia and Virgin right after there was a sex scene. And I, like they're playing Silent Night. And the when um, the two married couple, when the married couple comes out of the bedroom, it was Rounia and Virgin. And I was like, oh, shit, did they do that on purpose after they just yes. had their honeymoon? I love it. I was quite surprised with, okay, the, the, the song, the white rose of Texas. Is that the famous song that they kept playing? So I felt like a dumbass because I was like, why are they playing? I've been working on the railroad. That's what I kept saying. <laughs> and then at the end, they sang like the eyes of Texas. You the know, eyes of you. Texas. That's right. Right. And I went, oh, okay. I was clearly wrong. Ditto. Um, I'm like, clearly wrong. I've been working on the railroad. Interesting. I did right. We really stole Texas, didn't we? I mean, away from Mexico. And I was like, yes, Leslie. Hello. Yes. Um, and she says to him, I still have a mind of my own. Uh, she has so many good, like, lines. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then this was a good Jet Rink one about, you know, all the stuff. He says, who gets hold of this much land unless they took it off somebody else? Yes. I was like, well, yeah, that's correct, Jet. And, you know, it was... It was that line that gave me some more compassion for Jet because obviously he had never been given anything and people take, take, take from the people that work for them. Yes. <laughs> well, I, this is, I have a hard time reconciling with how, how can Jet understand this and like say that line and see it and not be compassionate. I, I just don't understand how he's not compassionate towards his fellow workers. I don't understand why he sees Mexicans as being different from himself when they're in similar situations. That's it's hard for me. Well, just like Elizabeth Taylor and her and her servants in in Maryland. That's such a integral part of racism, I guess, is to see the other in your context. You can't you can't see it. 
and maybe he was pulling some of that like i know that this happens uh sometimes where people want to view themselves as better than somebody so they pick a race or a class that they are better than so that they can feel higher up when in fact that is nonsense <laughs> there was one other jet thing oh you just brought this back to me about how jet's eventual undoing is caused by racism because jet has racist policies in his hotel and in his like hair salon that he owns in the hotel that's what causes all of the fights and that's what causes him to be so humiliated in himself that he drinks even more so he's already had too much to drink he's humiliated in front of everybody because he's racist and you know wouldn't let juana get her hair done because he's an ass and um you know jordan comes in to fight him he punches jordan and then big jordan takes him aside into like a wine room and realizes how absolutely drunk he is and what a worthless you know he looks so uh what's the word like slimy in that scene yeah oh he does he sees it and he goes oh you're not even worth it and um he knocks over all the wine and i was like "Ooh, not the wine but i it was it was fine Mm -hmm. and then jet takes even more drinks and then passes out uh Mm -hmm. when he's supposed to be giving his big speech uh and everyone sees who he really is just like it's all a mirage you know it's kind of interesting because in that scene it felt to me as though jet wanted Bic to take him out. It almost felt like he wanted him to hurt him. He, yeah, that, and that gave me more uh, compassion for Jet. There was just that moment where it felt as though, and I know he had been drinking a lot, so maybe he couldn't respond, but you could feel his sense of worthlessness. I think in my head, I was just realizing, I thought maybe if he punches me out, I'll have an excuse for why I can't go through with this. Yeah. But that you, I think your way is better. <laughs> I like the, I like what you said better. Well, and it also feels as though here's the pinnacle of his career, the most that anyone has. He has an airport named after him. He's at this huge hotel, and he's still empty inside. So he's bought the hotel. He's done all this stuff. He's got mm-hmm. all the money, and he's going to show himself. He's going to give a speech. He's going to be, for the first time, he's going to be part of that crowd. He's never been part of the crowd before. He's about to do it and it fails, oof, because he doesn't believe in himself and is racist. And can't shake his love, Elizabeth Taylor, who he just, and Elizabeth Taylor's one of the only people who shows him any kindness in the film, after Luz. She says to him, um, you know, you're odd, but I like you. Yes. And then you can see him react to that. He's, no one's ever said, I like you before. Yeah. And he says, I like you too. and. I think he takes that very seriously. I think maybe to him, that means I love you, when in fact, it was just an offering of kindness. Yes. Um, But that's like, I think when his dream blossoms, that's when it like, oh, what if I could have this other life? Right, it is pretty creepy because he has her picture on the wall and- It's, yeah. (laughs) Pretty creepy, that's, it reminds me of Judd again. It's another Oklahoma. You're right, I had never put all this together, but especially now that there's that new, retelling of Oklahoma where Uh Judd is more you're not it's more ambivalent you're like oh maybe he's not such a villain I don't know I don't know maybe Curly's the villain I don't know um yeah that's that it does have a lot of those vibes you're totally correct um which is perfect because if we don't have any other um modern lens because I think we've said it the whole time like there's so many things we Mm -hmm. couldn't all day long we could just modern lens it I suppose right um but if we want to double feature it, if you like this, what else would you watch? Uh, Susanna, do you have any any good ones that you want to share? 
go on a George Stevens tear, for heaven's sake. I mean, a place in the sun, come the heck on. I mean, I find it to be, it makes me so, so sad. Yes. <laughs> but oh. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent film. Um, it would pair very well with this. What about Big Country? I've never seen Big Country, but it was, if you type in Giant, mm-hmm. like if you're looking for the film, that's mm-hmm. one of the first films that comes up. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I've never seen it, but that was uh, a film that popped up when I searched for Giant. Yeah, that's wonderful. So that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like A Place in the Sun, obviously, it's another George Stevens picture. It won the Oscar. I wrote down so many. Um, I feel like you said Oklahoma. Sure, you could watch Oklahoma with this. <laughs> um, as well. But I, this reminded me of a lot of other things. I feel like if you want to go George Stevens on it, mm-hmm. I feel like um, Shane or I Remember Mama would both pair really well with this. Yeah. Um, I Remember Mama is like an immigrant story and like children of immigrants who just want to be American, like coming to like understanding their parents better. Yeah. Um, and then Shane, I mean, it's a Western and it's a Western about like dealing with bullies. Right. So yeah, both of those. And then I wrote Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because I love Elizabeth Taylor in it. And yeah. because I feel like it's got a similar vibe uh-huh. to this. I think I've never seen the movie East of Eden, but I've read the book and it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. Oh yeah. Well, so I feel like that would pair really well with this. Um, yeah. Like generational, biblical, <laughs> epic. I also wrote down HUD would be a great pairing with this. I oh. I love Paul Newman more than anything. He's I just mm. love him, mm-hmm. and HUD is great. Uh, and it has like it's, you know, cattle industry, but also like family uh, dynamics and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I oh Johnny Guitar I wrote down too. I wrote down Ooh. so many double features, <laughs> but Johnny oh. Guitar solid feminist western and mercedes mccambridge choose that scenery up i've never seen that i'm gonna have to watch that now get ready it's like it's a trip because it's not a perfect film but it's so interesting there's nothing like it it's like it's its own thing oh that sounds awesome I've so, I wrote so many movies I'm realizing now. I'm like, and I wrote. Go, 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 okay, Written go. on the Wind, which I've, I've also never seen Written on the Wind, but it's a Douglas Sirk picture starring uh, Rock Hudson and Lauren Bacall, and it's a Western, Ooh. I guess. Wow. I don't know. So there's that. And then um, There Will Be Blood, I wrote down because of all the oil stuff. Mm, yes. The oil tycoons. The oil tycoons. Um, it is insane that you could be a billionaire if oil was in your backyard. Right? Um, yes, it's just insane. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Yep. And then I wrote So Big, which I've actually never seen the film, but I've heard the radio play and I like the radio play a lot. So I imagine I'd like the film. I love that. Written by Edna Ferber. And then Showboat also because it deals with like generational aspects of things and racism. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Those are all fabulous. And I wrote The Mirror Cracked because it's older Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson acting together, but it's not. It's not an excellent film or anything, but they it's are acting to together. Them. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I wonder if they really liked working together. I imagine they did mm-hmm. because don't, don't you like, that's what I think. She was a safe haven for LGBTQ plus people, you know, like yeah. she was in love with Montgomery Clift as you know, she just loved him as a human and his death totally crushed her. And I think that probably like her, gay co-stars knew that they could trust her. That's just my suspicion. Um, Yeah, so interesting. I bet that's a great point. Also, people at home, you may know Elizabeth Taylor from lots of films. She won an Academy Award for Butterfield 8, even though she did not particularly like that film, apparently. 
but she's also in A Place in the Sun and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which I'd recommended, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And you may know her from her White Diamonds commercial where she says, these have always brought me luck and puts them on a table. Elizabeth Taylor, she is just... She's fab. I mean, she is just, she's a bona fide, beauteous movie star. 100%. And she was a dame. I didn't know that. Did you know she was a dame? No. Because she was technically born in England. So she's a dame. I didn't know. You know, and what was, I read a book about when she and Richard Burton went to film Cleopatra. And Cleopatra, what the heck, may as well watch that while you're, you know, feasting on Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, She's so much fun to watch. But for Rock Hudson, for people at home, you may know him from All That Heaven Allows. That is my favorite Rock Hudson picture. Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk was the next thing I wrote. (laughs) Pillow Talk, Doris Day. Love Um, it. We owned that on VHS when I was a kid. Mm. Come September, Magnificent Obsession. Those Mm. are some of his. And then James Dean, you might know from Rebel Without a Cause, which I'm sure we'll do on this show at some point. Mm -hmm. And East of Eden. Um, Dennis Hopper's in this. You know him from Easy Rider. Carol Baker was in How the West Was Won. Sal Minia is from uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And Rod Taylor, who played David, is from The Birds. Oh, I could not figure out where I knew him from. That is why. Right? Yeah. I was like, you're so familiar. And then when I was uh, going through IMDb, I looked at his, I saw his picture and it clicked. And I went, oh. So that's what everybody was in and what everybody did. So that's been said. And then you can watch Police Woman on television with Earl Holloman. He's adorable. Now, the reason I know him is because yes. he was a huge, well, he was in the, television show with Angie Dickinson way back in the day called Police Woman, which my dad was on at least once. I remember being on the set with him. And Earl Holloman was a humongous, I don't maybe a founder of Actors and Others for Animals with <sighs> Doris Day. I mean, he was just a huge animal rights activist. So that's interesting that he was on Giant. But I guess Giant is makes, you know, animal rights kind of gets you questioning it and thinking about it. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I wonder how you would, how did they end up, you know, doing that? I will never forget the story you told last time about Angie Dickinson and her like lean back thing. How she yes. it. I will never forget that. Right. Right. It's incredible. It is pretty crazy. Well, we did it. We did the show. Woohoo. It was so fun. Thank you so much for being on this show and watching this movie with me. It was Oh my lovely. gosh. It was my absolute pleasure. I enjoyed it so much and my husband loved it. In fact, he needs to watch the final 30 minutes because he fell asleep. Well, don't worry. The last three minutes are just the Texas song. So it's technically three minutes shorter than you think. This was such a blast, Sarah. Thank you for doing this. And um, everyone at home, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Susanna Mars. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.